It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> You are listening to the Fringe Radio Network. FringeRadioNetwork.com I've got one that can see. You are now listening to the Eyes Wide Open Podcast. Stay awake, don't sleep. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Eyes Wide Open. I'm your host, Leonard Olivares, and today I'm going to be interviewing Jerry Marzinski. Now, Jerry Marzinski has been on the program before. Last time we had a little bit of technical difficulties. The sound wasn't as as the quality that we usually have. So I asked him to come back on again because I believe that the information that he has is very vital for our audience to, to understand and to have their eyes open to, to what's going on as far as when it comes to uh, psychology or... Well, yeah, psychology, psychiatry, and the, you know, the psychiatric mafia. The psychiatric mafia. Okay, Jerry, so go ahead and give a, a brief introduction for those that don't know you, that haven't heard the last, and for those that, that listened to the last episode and you were able to soldier on through that, that audio sound, you know, kudos to you, and we're glad that you, you're able to, to listen to it and, and grasp the information that was said. But like I said, we just want to give a, a better audio because I believe that this message is very important. Uh, Jerry believes that this message is very important and um, it just needs to get out. You know, every seed that we can sow into the mind of, of, of a human, that it can blossom and grow into, into, into bear fruit. That's, that's what we're here to do. We're here to just throw seeds or water a seed that may have been already planted. We just, we, we just want it to grow and, and, to, and to bear fruit. So go ahead, Jerry, give, give a quick introduction of who you are. Well, my name's Jerry Marzinski. I'm a, a licensed uh, psychotherapist. Uh, I've got over 35 years of experience working in a variety of <clears throat> different mental health settings. Uh, I started off with uh, working at the biggest uh, psychiatric hospital on the planet. Um, at the time I was there, there were about 10,000 patients there, and it sprawled over 200 acres uh, or more. Um, I spent uh, seven years working there um, with all variety of, of different uh, psychiatric diagnoses, and that's where I took a special interest in schizophrenia. Um, it was a very interesting uh, illness. I spent uh, about 16 or 17 years working with the criminally insane at the uh, uh, a large state prison. Um, spent over 10 years working uh, uh, psychiatric crisis in emergency rooms in, in various uh, large hospitals around Tucson. Worked in mental health centers. Um, 
uh, have been at this for over 35 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, <clears throat> I've, I've, the one guy called me a psychonaut and I, I think that kind of fits because, you know, I've, I've dove into the guts of these dark institutions. Uh, and I remember as a child, I would pass by these places and you'd see a large state prison and you'd go, wow, I wonder what's going on in there or a, 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 a big psychiatric hospital and, you know, I wonder what's going on in there. Well, they've kind of pretty well got it blocked off. So, you know, the average guy just can't get in there. Uh, you can't see what's going on. You can't speak to these people. You don't have free access. Uh, and, and people who want to do research don't have free access. They're, they're kind of, they're kind of like frozen worlds that they block off from the rest of society. And, uh, and what I found there, uh, <clears throat> you know, I've always wondered what, what made these people tick. And, and like I said, what I found there, it, it boggles the imagination. If I didn't experience it myself, I, I still probably wouldn't believe it. Uh, and I denied it for years before it finally it just got to the point where I just couldn't deny it any longer. I mean, it was just right there in my face. Um, and I want to hand it to you guys who are out there listening right now. It's not a mistake that you're out there. You were pulled in to listen to this information, and a lot of other people weren't. So something out there feels that you have the light to see and hear and understand some of the incredible things that I'm about to bring from the depths of the state hospital and the depths of the state prison working with you know criminally insane and, and raving psychotics and, and tell you what drives these people and how it's connected to us as individuals. And I believe it's you guys that are going to be the saviors here because psychiatry and psychology and the medical mafia are deaf. They are not, they just can't come out of their, the box that they've been programmed into through years and years of, of schooling and, and, uh, it's, it's layer after layer after layer of programming that they just can't get through. They just can't break out of that box. They, they, they can't come to the realization that we're spiritual entities that our bodies are just kind of like cars. We drive around in these bodies, but we're not this body, <clears throat> you know. And a lot of people think you they're their thoughts. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. No, you're not your thoughts, you know. If you can, you can pull back and you can watch your thoughts flow into your head. Now, if you can do that, and everybody can do that if you make the effort. Who is the who's the watcher? Who's the one who's watching those thoughts flow in? Who's the one who's listening to those thoughts, constantly jabbering at you, telling you this, telling you that, talking about this guy, talking about that guy, you know, this constant jabber that just won't shut up? Who's listening to that? You are the one who who, who lives in this body. Those thoughts are not you. And that becomes very obviously clear when you start working with schizophrenics and psychotics and the criminally insane. <clears throat> because 
the thoughts that are coming into their heads do not belong to them, and they have a very different intent than the person themselves. Now let's 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 get into the genesis of this. Let's get into the beginning of of where psychology started from. First of all, let's let's talk about you. Let's talk about how you got involved into wanting to do this type of work in the first place. Like what drove you to want to go to school to learn about psychology, to learn about the human mind and and to to work with the with the people that were mentally ill as you know as as society would call them. Well, I think like like most people who went into psych you know, I had a very tumultuous upbringing, and I came out of it all screwed up, you know, kind of like, okay, who am I? What am I? What What am I thinking? Why am I thinking this? What am I doing? What's going on in my head? You know, how do I straighten all this out? You know, it, it, it it's like, you know, trying to understand myself, because if you don't understand yourself first, or, or at least try to, you're not going to, you're going to have a hard time understanding other people. Now, one of the things that happened to me starting off very early was I was a very inquisitive kid, and I would just batter my father with questions about why is this, why is that, what is, and, and there was so many and so constant that, you know, he, he didn't want to look dumb, so he, he started the questions he didn't know the answers to. He just made something up and told me lies, and I remember the first one where I caught that was I was in elementary school and I asked him, uh, "Hey, uh, Dad, why, why, why are those round things on the side of of Viking ships? You know, the, the shields. I didn't know what a shield was. I didn't know what they were. And I asked him, what, what are they? What are they used for? And yeah, he knew the answer to this. But instead of telling me the truth, he said, "Well, they're to keep the fish out. You know, so you know, a year or two later." That question came up in class, and I raised my hand. You know, oh yeah, I know what those things are. You know, they're to keep the fish out. The, the whole class, you know, broke out laughing. You know, that was the first time that it was hammered in my head that I could not trust authority. And once I had that mindset, you know, once you set something like that in your head, then you start looking for aberrations where authority couldn't be trusted, and. Uh, that went, you know, on the, uh, when I was in the Boy Scouts, <clears throat> I, I had completed all the all the requirements for the star badge for for Scouts, and including m- memorizing the entire Morse code. And when I got up there, the uh, Scoutmaster asked me, "Well, you, you know, you you go to church?" And I said, "Well, not very often." And he goes, "Well, then." you don't meet the requirement for being reverent. And I said, okay, well, you know, how, how long do I have to go to church to be reverent? And he goes, six months. <laughs> so every day, yeah, you know, every Sunday, I went six months to this church, you know, within walking distance. Uh, the, the scoutmaster and the preacher talked, and the, the preacher was aware of why, why I was going. And while I was there, uh, you know, we were building tabernacles and and, and you know, I wasn't learning much of, of anything and I found out that the preacher was you know cheating with one of the uh, one of the wives of, of somebody in the church and that kind of shocked me and after I got out of there well you know well you can't trudge preachers either so you know they added that to my under my buckle 
And then, um, you know, I, I went to my scoutmaster with the note, and and the note says, yeah, you know, Jerry came to church, but he he certainly didn't set the the world on fire. He you know he didn't show a lot of interest, and uh, and I didn't. Uh, there was nothing there at that point that interested me. So the scoutmaster said, well, you know, he read that note, and he said, well, you got to go another six months. And I said, the hell I will. You know, I kept my part of the bargain. You keep yours. And he said, no. And I went, okay, I quit. <laughs> so I quit the scouts. So at, at that point, <clears throat> I, you know, okay, I couldn't trust, you know, preachers. I couldn't trust my dad. I couldn't trust uh, the scoutmaster. So here's all these, you know, distrust building. But I thought, you know, the way my dad taught me, it was like professors are like gods. So as I as I entered college, that's what I thought. You know, professors are like gods. And um, you know, then there, I was I took this ancient history class at at the university, and and this guy acted like that was the only class in the in the world. I mean, it was a book that was like a foot thick, and you know, it, it hundreds of pages of reading. Uh, you know, a, a hundred pages a night. I mean, you would kill yourself in this class, and it was an elective. And this guy was such a sexist. He would crack these sexist jokes in class, and I'd just sit there and, and kind of stare at him, you know, just like, you know, how can you do that? And uh, he walks up, and he says, oh, you didn't think that was very funny, did you, Mr. Marzinski, after after one of his cracks? And I said, no, no, I didn't. I didn't. And, boy, he looked at me and, like, phew. Uh, uh, and uh, so I, you know, I had a B at, in, in, at midterm, and then there was so much, it was going to be over the whole semester, this giant book, and everybody complained and went, you know, that that's too much. We, we just can't do that. And so he wrote, out, wrote down all these areas that wouldn't be on the test. And okay, I, I, it was one. It was the only all-nighter that I ever pulled because it was so much information. So you know, drug myself into the final exam and got the. It was essay, and I looked at it, and about half the things that he said would not be on the test were on the test. You know, and I'd written down what what wouldn't be on the test. So you know, I thought, well, I did well enough on on these questions, and I, at the end of the the exam, I put. You know, what the hell did you do that for? You know, you, you told us these things wouldn't be on the test. What'd you do that for? You know, and uh, he failed me. And I was furious because I knew I did better than that. So I went to try to see him. I couldn't get in his office. He, he blocked me. Um, you know, he, he wouldn't answer my calls. So he, he wouldn't he wouldn't come when I went to his office. So that was it with professors. Um, and then as I, as I was going through through school, what I hated about psychology in particular is that there was no way to verify what they were teaching you. You know, if you're if you're in engineering or or mathematics or one of the hard sciences or in medical school or something, you can go into a lab or you can you can experiment with these concepts and you can see them for yourself. I mean, you can you can see the evidence for yourself, but in in psychology, you can't. You, you know, undergraduates did not have access to any clinical population that they can work with. You're just sitting there, and they they expect you to believe everything that is being said to you. 
and you know, I, I remember a, a couple of times where there was one where we were required to read a, a paper written by a supposedly research psychologist. And the gist of that paper was, uh, and this was an abnormal psych. I mean, as soon as I saw abnormal psych, I said, this is fascinating. I mean, it just hooked me right away. And the gist of that paper was that if two lunatics met each other, two crazy people met each other, and they had the same delusion, you know, one of them would have to give way. One of them would have to change that delusion. And, and I'm like, why would that have to happen? You, you got two crazy people. Why would one have to change his delusion so it didn't match the other one? It just it just didn't make sense to me. Yeah. So that was one thing. It just it just kind of stuck in the back of my head, and uh, you know, it's kind of like I filed it away for <laughs> later day. And another one was that schizophrenics are are too disorganized to do any advanced planning. They're they're just too messed up. And uh, I went, well, you know, how could they be that bad? I mean, they have to plan out meals and they have to plan how to eat and stay alive and and do daily living things and and not jump into traffic. And you know, why why can't they plan? ahead at least to some degree so that stuck in my head now now fast forward uh probably another let me say two b3 probably close to 10 years you know i was <clears throat> i was at the state hospital and i was uh, making rounds on the second floor of one of the psychiatric units uh, checking to see if any new patients came in and i spotted one wandering around talking to himself so he was carrying on a conversation with with his voices, and it sounded, you know, like one side of a telephone conversation. If you ever heard somebody talking on the phone, you you could hear their responses and and them talking to another person, and you know it was kind of coherent responses, but you couldn't hear the other end of the line. So uh, I walked up to this guy, and and I was kind of listening to the one way conversation, and it it appeared like he was talking to somebody. Now in in uh, in graduate school and, and undergrad, they just said, oh, these people are hallucinating. You know, they would say, okay, uh, audio hallucinations. And, and I didn't really know what that meant. Uh, and this was kind of the first time I'd run into that. And I'm listening to this one-way conversation. So uh, he saw me watching him and and I turned around. And he, uh, I introduced myself. I said, I'm Jerry. I'm the psych for this unit. Uh uh, did you just get here? And he goes, yeah, I, I just got here. And uh, I said, well, you know, what's your name? And he says, I'm Jesus Christ. And I went, oh, okay. I said, no, no, you can't be Jesus Christ because I am. And I was waiting for his response to see if what this professor had told me was true. You know, if I was Jesus Christ, this guy can't be Jesus Christ too, according to that guy's paper that I read, you know, 10, 7, 10 years ago. So I'm waiting on kind of pins and needles for what he's going to do. And he, he looks a little confused, and then he looks up at me and he goes, okay, we can both be Jesus Christ. And then he just walks off. <laughs> I went, okay, so what else did they freaking lie to me about? You know, what other garbage did they they put out? And I remember looking through the back of some of those textbooks, 
And it reminded me while I was scuba diving of these, these little fish that build these little rock mounds. They're like little communities of fish, and they just stick their heads out of the little hole, and they have these little pebble mounds. And when one leaves to go steal a rock from another, uh, one will come out and steal his rocks. So they're they're all stealing each other's rocks in this little community and adding them to, you know, their their little pile. And the only ones who were bringing in fresh material were those on the outskirts, on the the outlier guys, you know, that would go out into the ocean where there were no other, uh, you know, fish like him and and grab a pebble that didn't actually belong to somebody else and bring it back into the community. Now, so, now, before, now, before we go any farther, who started psychology? Like, who, who was the, the founder of this? I mean, this isn't something that's always been. It's actually something that's recently kind of new. Uh, who was it? It was uh, William James. Okay. So he was uh, psychology, and then uh, psychiatry had its own its own history. Um, you know, that, that goes back you know, hundreds of years. Um, I mean, this, now, was, this was in the, the 19th century, right? The uh, uh, well, psychiatry? The psychiatry, yeah. Uh, yeah, in the in 19th century, uh, what you had was a battle back in uh, uh, the psychoanalysts were, were the ones that dominated that field for a long time. And then you came the neurologists who actually studied the brain, and the psychiatrists were actually the ones who they were kind of like the the stepchild, and they didn't have anything going until let me let me pull up this uh, uh, this paper I have here. The, the the medical split started with the Greeks and Hippocrates, so. Hippocrates is like, okay, there's a biological cause for physical illnesses. You know, there's diseases, there's cleanliness, that kind of stuff. So he started moving in that direction. Uh, and, and that's where the split with the spiritual stuff started dividing. So, um, Hippocrates was deemed the, um, father of modern medicine. So here's this whole line starting down that way. Now, on the other hand, the Bible is saying, okay, uh, these mental illnesses, these people who were acting crazy, you know, some, what was it, 23 times, I believe, in the Bible, it said Jesus cast out demons and they returned to normal. You know? So you got that. You got the history of shamans who were curing people uh, spiritually for tens of thousands of years, even before Hippocrates was on the scene. You know? So all of a sudden, here's this this split that started with Hippocrates, and it started with physical medicine. So, you know, that kind of thinking kind of works for physical medicine. You know, there, there's germs, there's cleanliness, there's that kind of stuff. Um, but where it got crazy was in um, when, when a fellow named, um, uh, and, and around 1911, he's a German psychiatrist, Emil Kraepelin, known as the father of modern psychiatry and pharmacology. Out of nowhere, you know, he he, he named a schizophrenia something called dementia precox, and he just declared 
out of nowhere with no no research, without any backing, without any hardcore evidence at all. He, he declared that schizophrenia and psychosis are a physical problem, and uh, they called it precocious madness in that days, in those days, and that it was due to uh, a genetic origin or or something else, with with no research into the matter at all. So here he goes. Oh well, it's a, it's a, a genetic disorder because it does somewhat follow families. Right. So based on that, in 1937, in the United States, they forced sterilized some 250,000 mentally ill patients with with no evidence whatsoever that it was genetic. None. So here you have this line coming down where mental illness is put under the category of some kind of physical illness. So. So around 1908, a Swiss psychiatrist named Eugene Bueller uh, renamed uh, this dementia precox schizophrenia, which means split mind in Greek. Right? And then it was uh, that was right after that the start of the you know diagnostic and statistical manual of disorders. So that's the DSM that psychiatrists and psychologists that's their bible. All right. That's the listing of all the mental illnesses that they know of. And every single one of them is made up. Not one of them has any kind of research backing, any kind of laboratory test, any kind of any kind of physiological scientific test to back it up. It's a complete book of fiction. Every single diagnosis is made up. A bunch of psychiatrists sat around and just made up these categories. So they go, okay, this mental illness consists of these these aspects. Right? So schizophrenia, the the aspects of that. But then it, it started getting out of hand. It's it started with like seventy five diagnoses, and then it it just kept growing every year by by the by ten after ten tens and scores and and then it got into the hundreds and I think it was last at like three hundred and fifty, which included um, diagnoses like Southern Bell syndrome. You know, so you know the Southern Bells they have their way of doing things and talking and acting and th- this was a, a now a diagnostic mental illness that they put into their DSM. Mental retardation was a mental illness. Homosexuality was listed as a mental illness and, and was eventually taken out. Um, so here they're just making these things up. And then here comes the drug companies afterward going, oh, yeah, we got drugs to, to, to treat all these things. So here, here they are in collaboration, you know, the entire time. So... Uh, you know, all, all those things are made up. They, 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 <clears throat> from the earliest times, you know, they, they couldn't find what was causing schizophrenia. So the origin of the treatment for this illness goes, goes all the way back in, in, uh, like 1488 to 1516. Uh, the doctors at that time were drilling holes in the heads of their patients to let out whatever was in there. Now, in very rare cases, that worked because there was pressure on the brain. 
But in most cases, it did not. So here they are boring holes in the person's brain. In the 19th century, they, they started pouring distilled alcohol into those holes, thinking that if there was some kind of germ in the, in the patient's brain that caused schizophrenia, the alcohol would kill it. You know, yeah, that didn't work very well. You know, so, you know, it just, it just kept progressing. Uh, in, in 1790, uh, a upholsterer in France, uh, a guy named uh, Gouliert, I think it was, uh, invented the straitjacket, which is, you know, what they needed was something to control these hospital populations. They, they would take schizophrenics and, and insane and they would put them into a hospital setting and oftentimes they were upset and violent and they were hard to control and and they needed some way to control these guys so one of the first ways to do that was these straitjackets and that was invented by a french upholsterer um back in around 1790 so they were they started locking uh insane people up in padded cells, putting them in straitjackets. And at the time I got to uh, Central State Hospital, where I was working, some a lot of the attendants would have stories of battles that they would fight with these uh, psychotic patients to get them into a straitjacket in the first place. So they need to get a number of attendants to fight these violent uh, schizophrenics. And, and let me tell you, those guys, when they get upset, they are supernaturally strong. Uh, I mean, I got, I got one tale I can tell you that happened at the prison, and then I'll get back to the history here. And this was on one of the major cell blocks. Uh, it was a high uh, security cell block, and it was like three tiers high. And, uh, you know, some, some pretty nasty hombres were in that cell block. Um, and there was a psychotic inmate down on the bottom cell that they wanted to move to a different cell and that guy refused to come out and uh, so the guard said well you know you come out of there or you know we're gonna we're gonna douse you with pepper spray and they had like these quart cans of pepper spray and I don't know if you've ever been around that stuff, but it's pretty nasty stuff. If you, you just get around it, I mean, your eyes water and it stings and it burns. It's really, really horrible stuff. It, 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 it can most of the time bring down the most violent inmate. And uh, this guy was maybe 175 pounds and he was strong as a mule. <clears throat> and uh, they said, come on, we're moving you out. We're changing you to another cell. And he said, the hell you are. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, and they said, well, we're going we're gonna to have to pepper spray you then. So he goes, screw you. So, you know, they give him another chance, and he got a towel, and he put it over his head, and they just doused him with, with like, two quarts of that crap. And it was just all over the cells, and, and the guards who were spraying him were suffering also because that's it was coming out, and it was burning them, and it's, it's just awful stuff. And <clears throat> the inmate... After they're done with two quarts of that stuff, he takes the towel off and he's just sitting there, you know, giving them the finger and cursing them. And uh, now, by now, the whole cell block is watching this show. And so now it's the guards against this inmate, and they're all standing at their at their cell cell doors, looking down, watching this show. 
and you know the guards couldn't lose face, so it became an ego deal on top of it. So they, uh, the guard said, you come out of there, we're going to get the stun guns. And he goes, screw you, you come in and get me, you weenies. And they're cussing them, calling them all kinds of names and insulting them. So they went and got these 50,000-volt guns that fired these darts that had a thin wire attached to it. And that, that dart would embed itself in the, in the skin of the, the prisoner. And then they'd pull the trigger and a 50,000-volt jolt would hit him. And, and that was enough to bring down even the biggest prisoners. I, I've never seen a prisoner who wouldn't be brought down by one of those uh, shot from one of those things. This guy stood there and they hit him with this thing and pulled the trigger and he just stood there and shivered. He did not go down and they let it charge up again. They hit him again. He just stood there and shivered, getting madder the entire time. So another guard came with a second one and he shot him, too. And here they were alternating. This happened 13 times. And by then, there were a number of guards standing all around that cell. And the warden came down to watch this fiasco. And, and they'd hit him one time after another. You know, boom, 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 50,000 volts. One gun was recharging while the other one was discharging. And the guy just stood there and shivered with each shot. He would not go down. And n nobody had ever seen anything like that before. So finally, the warden went, stop, you know, they're going to get me for cruel and unusual punishment. So, uh, you know, the, the guards are saying, okay, now you're going to come out of there? And he goes, screw you, weenies, come in and get me, you bunch of little sissy asses. I mean, he's just insulting, calling them everything under the sun. Um, and there, at that point, there was no guard to go, go in there and try to get him out. So they said, you come out. Now, now what they could have done was just turned off the water to that cell. You know, and not fed him, and eventually he would have come out of there. Yeah. But no, they had to do their macho thing like they do. You know, they 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 hire a certain kind of mentality for guards in those places most of the time. So they they went, okay, you know, basically we're not losing face. We're going to go get the dog. Now the prisoners were terrified of these attack dogs. They were specially trained Belgium. Uh, German shepherds that were just vicious when they were turned loose. And uh, and the guy goes, you screw you, go get your 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 doggy. You, you know, he stood there cursing them and and insulting them. So they brought the dog and the dog handler in. They said, okay, now you come out or we're going to sick this dog on you. And the guy, you know, screw you, you come in and get me out. So they cracked the door of the cell. The dog ran in, this guy's sitting, this prisoner sitting on the edge of his bed, and he throws up his forearm in front of his face. The dog leaps and grabs him right around the wrist and chomps down and bites all the way down to the bone. And and the guy uh, pulls the dog right to his face, you know, with the dog still attached to his arm, and the, the dog's nose is inches from his face, and he goes, sit. And the dog sat. You know, the dog didn't let go of his arm. I mean, it's, he's gushing blood all over the place. The the fangs are sunk in all the way to the bone. The dog isn't letting go, but he sits. And then the prisoner starts, good puppy, starts petting the dog's head and going, good puppy, good puppy. And everybody's outside there going, what in the hell is going on? So they finally, uh, by then there were probably 25 guards out there. They finally start pulling on the, the 
rope for the dog, and the dog didn't let go of the guy's arm, and they pulled the dog and the prisoner out of the cell, and then they beat the crap out of him. Yeah. So you talk about how supernaturally strong these psychotics can get. I mean, that was not anything a regular human could do. Well, that's how, and that's, that's, that's that's almost like like I've seen on the streets where people would smoke PCP, and um, when they'd get high off of Sherm, what we call it Sherm, they would uh, have this old, you know, this this superhuman strength, man, like literally be, like beating people up with their broken leg. You know, using that broken arm that's like dangling to to beat people in the head over with. You know, I it, it, I've seen people where it, it's taken like twelve police officers to just hold one person down with no clothes on, just naked, and you know, just with this, it, you know, a small frame person just with extreme strength. Exactly. You know, because exactly. Be, yeah. I, I've seen a hundred pound inmate bounce three big guards around the inside of now the psychotic inmate. Three big guards around the inside of a cell like they were popcorn. So when these guys are infuriated, when a psychotic becomes infuriated, they, they're supernaturally strong. It, it, it just makes no sense. You know? But it's, it's the same kind of thing you witnessed with the PCP. But these guys weren't on any kind of drug. Whatever the voices were, were was giving them that strength. And... Uh, I remember talking to a devil worshiper once, and, and this guy was uh, uh, this guy was spooky. I mean, this he was really spooky, and he was hearing voices also. But he most most schizophrenics are depressed and ha lack energy, and they're not very sociable, and they kind of keep to themselves a lot, and they're they're kind of paranoid. And this guy was way different, you know. But he he had this affect like that howdy doody. Uh, uh, a horror film. I, I I don't know what it was called, but it was like this Howdy Doody puppet kind of guy. He he had that kind of affect that was brighter than than most of the others, but it was very strange. And I called him into my office in the psych department one day just because I was curious and started asking him, um, you know, you, you're hearing voices, right? And he goes, Well, yeah, and. Uh, you know, he admitted he was a devil worshiper, and he he started talking a little bit about what he did, and I really didn't want to hear the details of that. But I was wondering where he got his energy, and because all the others were were their energy was gone, and he uh, when I asked him, he said they give it to me, and I I said who who gives it to you? He goes they do. So he's he's talking about the voices. And I said, well, what do they give it to you for? And he said, well, to, to perform certain tasks. And uh, he told me that he could astrally travel to certain cells in another prison uh, that was over 100 miles away, and he could actually see what was going on in those cells. But he said he was given that energy by whatever these voices were. At that time, I knew what they were, um, but when they're infuriated, when when a schizophrenic is infuriated, they're given energy beyond belief to fight back with, and they become very dangerous. And these Kickstarter guards who you know just like beating up on inmates and and demeaning them and and provoking them. 
they learn not to mess with with psychotic prisoners. You know, they learn that the hard way. <clears throat> do, do you want to go back to the history of psychiatry? Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. Have... Because I think it's important that people that don't know about psych, you know, psychiatry, you know, know the history about it because you know, and, and the type of people that were uh, the fathers of, of of what we now have as as, psych, as psychiatry now. You know, a lot of these people were insane people themselves, you know, and um, just, you know, uh, I like a lot of interviews I've done with other people. And a lot of these people that are out in the forefront, you will say like uh, Alfred Kinsey for the sexual revolution revolutionist. He was insane. You know, he was an insane man. And this is the person that we we get our modern day uh, sex education from from the Kinsey Institute. But this man was insane. You know, and so a lot of these people, they're not right in the mind. And for whatever reason, we feel like, okay, well, yeah, they were crazy, but yet they were smart. So let's listen to a crazy smart person. You know, it just it just boggles my mind. I just don't understand. That's insanity itself. Well, that's interesting you say that because. (laughs) okay, here I got some very interesting statistics here. Yeah. So, you know. The schizophrenic population, I think everybody would agree, is, is a very unstable population. You know, suicide is the leading cause of death in schizophrenics, and four out of ten will attempt to kill themselves. Their, their, their suicide rate is five to ten times that of the regular population. Now, with the suicide rate that high, you know, I think you'd agree that that's not a very stable population. According to the Journal of Medical J- JAMA, the suicide rate for psychiatrists is 65 for 100,000, or 5.9 times higher than that of the general population, and roughly equivalent to that of their schizophrenic patients. Now, ain't the, doesn't that take the cake? Right. So you got a suicide rate of the people who are treating these guys that's equivalent to the schizophrenic suicide rate itself. Interesting statistic there. I just don't understand why, why we get our research from psychopaths. I mean, I, I don't know why we would uh, elevate those type of, that type of mind where we think that that type of person is something that we should uh, strive to be. Their knowledge is something that we should strive. They, they are clearly insane. You know, and um, their science or whatever they bring out clearly isn't working. That's why there's drugs to drug these people, because, you know, uh, they they come with things that are not facts. You know, they, they completely throw out the spiritualness of a person. They just focus on the flesh. They focus on the five senses, the sight, taste, touch, sound, smell. You know, they don't they don't want to. I'm, I'm pretty sure they know. But they don't, they, you know, they are trying to take the spiritual part, which is it's it's there's a spiritual nature. There's a dark darkness to this, you know, yeah, it's not there, just, there sure is. Right. Right. And so they don't want to acknowledge the darkness. That's exactly right. They don't want to see they you, and when I was in the doctoral program, it was like I spent years in that thing. And, and it was just it was so spiritually dry. It was like being in the Sahara Desert. 
you know, it, and and on top of that, remember I was telling you about the little fish. Well, you go to the back of any of these psych manuals, and you look. This guy got this information from this guy, who got the information from this guy, who got it from this guy, who got it from this guy, and the people who were actually working in clinical settings with with these people, there were very few of them. I mean, the, all these guys were academics, and then later on, I think just a, uh, several years ago, they came out and they said ninety percent of experiments published by psychologists are not repeatable they're not that they're garbage and, and they're garbage they're just publishing because they either publish or perish right and so now now we're getting into the part where you know this stuff doesn't make any sense you know it's not real science so they have to drug people and this is where the drugging comes in because it's easier just to drug if you don't understand something we'll just drug them let's just keep them sedated let's just keep them you know, let's let's just manage them. You know, let's be able to manage their outburst. You know, so to speak. You know, let's let's not have them function in society. You know, like with with chemical the chemical lobotomy on them. You mean? Yeah, yeah. So it, we can go, like, go back. You know, the first attempt to manage them was was the um, uh, trepanning, where they bore a hole in their head. So that didn't work. The next attempt that was somewhat successful was they wrap them up in a, a, a straitjacket. Then they would just leave them there until till they struggled themselves. Just and they were exhausted, you know. But the battles that it took to get them into a straitjacket were were vicious, and and staff got hurt and broken bones as well as did patients. Um, then they came up with something called the spinning chair. They called it the centrifuge treatment. They whirled the chair, spun it around to treat insanity in the 1800s. And this continued until the 1940s. Right. So it was, it was like this chair they would, it was dangled from the ceiling on a, on a pivot. And they would spin this chair until the guy was, was totally you know, disoriented and, and nauseous. And a lot of times they put a blindfold on them and, and it, it's like, you know, being on a bar stool and spinning around like, uh, you know, and then right, when you right. get out of that, you're, you're dizzy and you're nauseous and you don't feel like attacking people or, or, or causing problems. You're sick. So they went, oh, well, that works. You know, the guy was sick for a few hours afterward. And, you know, that was one way they used to manage him. And, and that went on till, you know, the 1940s. Well, and not only that, that, you know, let me tell you a quick story about me. When I was little, you know, I was always a problem child in school. So they thought there was things that were wrong with me. So I went to a Christian psychologist, right? And he had put, it was called the NATO clinic. He had put me on this uh, machine where you, it was like a, uh, it was like a round wooden machine with all these bearings on it. And he would tell me, okay, get on your knees. And, and he would spin me on this machine. Spin me, spin me as fast as he can. That's what these guys were doing. And then all of and all of a sudden he would stop me, and then he would my eyes would bounce, my eyes, my eye. So he he tell my mom, look at his eyes, and my eyes would go from left to right real fast, bouncing. And he said that that was doing something to my brain to help me. And my mom, he would give this device to my mom, saying, "I need you to spin him." 30 minutes a day, spin them like this. Stop it oh and then spin God. them. Stop oh it and then spin. God. And to this day, I can't get on any kind of ride that spins like that because it just makes, it just splits and, my and, head, man. And, and this was a, a psychiatrist was, or a psychologist? This, this, was, this was a psychiatrist in a, a Christian one, you know? Oh my and so heavens. my mom and dad were like, well, let's go to the Christian one. And, you know, it was no different. He stuck me on this machine, which had served no purpose, man. He yeah. must have yeah. read about people spinning on a chair blindfolded. 
thinking that it would work now with his little uh his little machine that he made, but it was just completely useless. Wow, so you were a victim of that that particular treatment. Right, huh? right. And that was around eleven years old at that time. Oh my God. So yeah, they they went from that to puking. So they would they would spin them in these devices like like that until the guy just got sick and would throw up. You know, so they would mechanically induce vomiting and you know how you feel after you throw up. Right. You know, you, you just don't feel good at all. You know, so they go, oh, yeah, the guy's sick and he's not causing us any problems now. He'll be sick for the rest of the day and then we don't have to worry about it. Yeah. So that was, you know, in the 1800s, uh, they, in the 1800s, they started introducing emetics, which are, you know, chemical substances that would make them puke and make them throw up. And, uh, you know, when you're nauseated, you don't cause any problems. So they would start giving them these these pills that would make them sick. In 1860s for the, the females, they would they called it female hysteria and they would inject apple cider with these big syringes into their uteruses because they thought the treatment for female hysteria was was by dousing the uterus with I think it was uh, cranberry juice and and uh, what else did they use? They used uh, apple uh, apple cider vinegar. They used Epsom salt. They used uh, uh, grapefruit juice. Um, and and then in extreme cases, <clears throat> with women who were just really out of it, then they, they would give them a hysterectomy. Because, so here they were blaming female insanity on the uterus. So here's your history of psychiatric treatment all the way down the line. Now, the next one in the 1930s was something called hydrotherapy, where they would wrap the person up like a mummy. And this happened around the 1930s. And they would put them in freezing cold bathtub, you know, with with uh, water. And they, they started out with warm water, and then it was regular water, and then it was extended periods in water, and then it was freezing cold water. Uh, they... they First, they started off dousing them with uh, giving them showers because, you know, you, after a shower, you feel pretty good. You're a little bit more relaxed. And then they went to fire hoses and high-pressure hoses and then these these baths um, where they would actually strap them into a tub of water and only let them up to go to the bathroom. Um, and, and then they went to something called forced standing, and uh, it, it was used often as a punishment. So they would kind of dangle them from the ceiling on ropes and, and hang their arms out to the side on ropes. So they could not sit down. They had to stand. And they would uh, that would just wear them out. And that was often used for disobedient patients as punishment. You know? And one of the most novel ones uh, was... Um, when, when was the date of this? Uh, yeah, this was 19th century too. Um, back, and it was back in the 1930s. They found that if they inject this one doctor, I think his name was, um, I think it was Jurig. Uh, he he found that syphilis, if if the the patient had malaria and their fever went very high. The fever would burn out the syphilis and, and cure the syphilis, and they knew what the cure for the, the um, uh, malaria was. So, you know, they would inject them with quinine. So 
what they would do is actually inject patients with syphilis with malaria. And then when their fever would go way high and, and burn out the syphilis, then they would kill the malaria with quinine. So they figured, okay, if, if the, the, the uh, malaria will burn out the syphilis germ, surely it must be able to burn out the schizophrenia germ. So here they are still thinking it's a physical cause. It's, it's a, uh, some kind of germ that has invaded their brain that's making them act crazy like that. So they would inject psychotic patients with syphilis. And, and that they would develop a raging temperature and they would, they were looking to see that that temperature would burn out the schizophrenia germ and it had no effect whatsoever. Now, the guy who, uh, invented this treatment for syphilis, who was given the Nobel Prize, but here they're still operating on Kraepelin's unsupported assertion that schizophrenia had a biological cause. So here they are doing all these biological things, any kind of spiritual anything is totally out of the question. You know, even though for for centuries, you know, people would go, well, he's possessed, or that person's possessed, or they're, they're evil spirits, or you know, they're uh, they they knew back in the medieval times they knew that these guys were infested with evil spirits. But no, now modern modern medicine is moving in this direction. You know, so. <clears throat> yeah. Then they, they moved to chemically induced seizures and they started that with, um, in the, in the 1900s with a, uh, a Hungarian pathologist. His name was Meduna, I think it was. And he would inject patients with uh, a substance called metrazole and that would induce violent nausea and, uh, um, seizures. Um, and they also in, would inject camphor. They would inject strychnine, uh, strychnine, but they, sef- they settled on metrazole to induce vomiting. And, you know, again, here, here you go when, you know, when you're, when you're sick as a dog and you're, you're, uh, in seizures and you're, you're vomiting, you don't feel like causing any problems. You know? So, they, that went, the, the psychiatrist started using metrazole for a long time, but the side effects included fractured bones, you know, memory loss, and, and a, about a 2% mortality rate. So they, you know, they saw it was only temporary and they, they stopped using it. So but in 1936, a, a doctor named Sackle, he was working in a, a psychiatric clinic in Berlin and found that after, uh, accidentally injecting, uh, one of his psychotic patients um, with too much insulin, um, the, there was some short-term improvement after they went into insulin shock. So he went, "Oh, yo, we found a treatment. You know, we just dose them down with massive doses of insulin and and put them in the shock. And and after they come out of the shock, they don't feel like causing any problems and they're manageable for a while. You know, so we'll, we'll use this. So he published that result." Uh, and then he, he moved to New York in the 1940s and, and psychiatry adopted Sackle's treatment, you know, insulin shock as the gold standard in psychiatric hospitals. And tens of thousands of psychotic patients were subjected to these insulin shocks. You know, um, 
and it you know it, it did leave the patient more manageable for a while, but the the side effects were were severe and they were dangerous. And then, okay, so here here's the 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 evolution of psychiatry here. And then in 1938, a, an Italian professor of neuropsychiatry, uh, a guy named Hugo Seroletti, I believe his name was found that uh, electrocuting the brains of animals in the lab and inducing seizures stunned stunned these lab rats, and they were lethargic afterwards. So he went, well, you know, hey, this might be a good treatment for psychotics. Uh, we'll, we'll, you know, stun their brains with electricity and, and uh, you know, see if we can treat them that way. <clears throat> so uh, then they started what they called the uh, – ETC or electroshock therapy. Uh, they ran some 450 volts of electric current through the patient's brain, which stunned them, made them lethargic and trouble-free for uh, uh, a period of time. Now, what I saw while I was working at the state hospital, it also got rid of their voices for uh, a, a couple of days, you know, which I found interesting. But they they eventually came back. So. This was called uh, electroshock therapy, and I watched one of these one time uh, while I was at the state hospital. Uh, a friend of mine called and said, "Hey, this uh, doctor's about to demonstrate uh, ECT at, at my unit. You know, come on over, and and he's got some students in there, and we can watch." You know, so I went over there, and I, man, I, you know, here here was this. They didn't have the highest quality doctors at the state hospital, and, and this guy was a Cuban guy. And he was kind of showboating. He had all these students around him, and here was this electroshock machine that looked like a wooden box, uh, about a foot and a half by a foot square. And on the top, it had uh, a dial or two and, and some knobs. And here's these two big square metal electrodes. So he's dangling these electrodes, and they're about you know three by three inches metal plates. And, you know, he's, he's talking, he holds these up and he goes, these are the electrodes that we use. We fasten them to the patient's head, but we have to smear them with, um, uh, it's like this gel. And he said, if you didn't put the gel on them, the electricity would actually burn the flesh of the patient when they set off the jolt. And, uh, so he, he's talking, talking. Then he finally, uh, calls the nurses and he said, okay, bring in the patient. So these two nurses disappear out into the hallway. And one on each side, and they have this frail old lady in tow. I mean, she looked almost like a skeleton, just very frail and and just kind of like stunned. And they walk her over to this gurney, and apparently she knew the, the drill. She sat down on the gurney, and then she lays down, and they start fastening her in with these buckles, with these, these leather buckles. They fastened her, her legs, her ankles her wrists, her forearms, and her forehead even. And, you know, I asked the psychiatrist, I said, well, why are you doing that? And he goes, uh, so she doesn't break her bones. You know, I don't let break her bones. Well, yeah, when you give her, give them a shock, you know, they they jump and, and if you don't have them fastened down, they're going to fly off the table or they break bones. And I'm like, uh, what? Uh, uh, that's kind of strange. And then he gets this horse needle. I mean, that thing must have been two inches wide and about you know, four inches long. And he sticks it into this bottle of uh, white fluid. 
and he draws the fluid out into the, this big needle. I mean, it looked like a freaking horse needle. And then he, he sticks it into the patient's vein. He couldn't find it at first, so he sticks her a number of times. And then instead of just pushing in the fluid, he draws blood into this, this needle. And here's this blood swirling and mixing with this white fluid. And I'm like, you know, what's he doing? So I asked him, I, I said, well, what, you know, well, what's that for? I mean, that's, that, that could probably knock down a horse. And he goes, well, that's muscle relaxant. Yeah, if we didn't use that to relax the muscles, she she would break bones when when she was convulsing. And I'm like thinking a treatment that breaks bones, you know. And I'm like, you know, getting weirded out by the by the minute. And then here's this frail lady; she's all strapped down, and uh, he he injects this huge needle of of white fluid into her arms. <clears throat> she starts relaxing a little bit. And then he tells all the students to back off from around the table. And he goes, okay, we're ready to, ready to do the shock. And he, he starts the machine, turns these dials, and he looks around, and then he hits the switch. And man, she's just, she just, just yanking against those, those straps. I mean, it's like if those straps weren't there, it seems like she would have just flown off that bed up and hit the ceiling. And she's just struggling and convulsing, and and it was it was awful. <coughs> and I'm like, okay, when is he going to turn this thing off? I mean, he just seemed like eternity that he left that shock on there. And then finally, he turns it off, and then he turns his attention back to the students, and he starts running his mouth, saying da 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 da. da. And I'm looking at this little lady, and she's turning blue, she's turning cyanotic, she's dying. And I I go, doctor, she's turning cyanotic. And almost like an afterthought, he goes, oh, oh, and he grabs these shock paddles that, you know, he puts on either side of her chest, and he shocks her, and, and she jumps again, and, and then her color starts coming back. And I was so shocked, I, I just stood there like, you know, I'm, I'm not squeamish. You know, nothing has ever caused me that I looked at has ever caused me to faint. But boy, when I turned around to walk out of there, I almost went down. I hung on to one of the pillars there <clears throat> and almost fell, you know, after witnessing this. They did this 3,000 times a year at Central State Hospital to psychiatric patients. And most of the time, it was done as punishment. It was recommended by attendants who said, this this guy's unruly, he's, you know, he's being nasty, he needs a shock treatment. And the doctor would just follow up with that based on what the attendants would tell him. You know, so... Yeah, that's, oh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, you know, that's crazy, man. You know, I mean, like I said, you know, they just completely take the spiritualness out of this and, and they focus on the physical. This is why this stuff is never going to be cured because it's a spiritual you know, a problem. It's not a physical one, you know, and I understand that there's people that have brain damage and they could, you know, they get hurt in their, in, in their brain and, and they're not the same, but you know, we're dealing with, when you start having a uh, superhuman strength and, you know, you begin to hear voices and you begin, I mean, that is a spiritual aspect to this man that they are oh. not wanting to the public to know about. They themselves, you know, like I said, turn a blind eye and you can attest to that being, being in this environment. Oh yeah, they 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 they're so programmed that they they don't want to even see that. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to listen to it. You know, they 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 just out of nowhere without any research just announce, 
that the voices that these people hear are hallucinations. They're not real. You know? So with no evidence, they haven't done any research into that at all. Those voices are very real. And they are separate entities, and they're very evil, and they're very nasty, and they're very destructive. You no, know, no, I've, no. I've spoken to them. I've been attacked by them. They've threatened me. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a whole different world. And, and I, I I believed like they did for years, but I wasn't as trusting of authority as they were. I wasn't as trusting of the programming that I received in uh, in in school. And I, I remember second year in the PhD program, you know, uh, the professor, the head of the department, no less, uh, after giving us a lecture on how to cheat with statistics, which shocked me. I mean, this guy used to be a preacher, and he's teaching us how to cheat with statistics and not get caught in a PhD psychology program. And I'm like, what? I, I can't believe this. And, you know, I look around, and all the other students except one, a friend of mine, uh, Tom, we looked at each other for a brief second, like, do you believe this? And everybody else is like staring straight ahead. Oh, oh, so that's how it's done. And I'm like, what is going on here? So the the one question I wanted answered, I was I was really starting to burn out on that program. They, I, I could feel them trying to change the way I thought and, and trying to turn me into an automatron. And I did not like that. And they knew it. So I raised my hand that after that uh, after that lecture, the professor, the head of the department, <clears throat> he said, "Is there anybody who has any questions?" And I raised my hand and I said, "Yeah, I, I do." Uh, and, he, and I asked, "I said, where do thoughts come from?" And he looked at me like I was a Martian that had just fallen out of a spaceship at his feet. Yeah, and yeah, they're supposed to know everything. And that's the that's the impression they they put out that they know everything, and he just stood there stunned, staring at me, and I went, "Uh oh, I'm in trouble again." And uh, he said, "I'll talk to you after the lecture." After he, he couldn't answer anything, I went went up, tried to reach him after the lecture, and he just kind of left the room, and I went, "Uh oh, <laughs> I'm in trouble." Yeah. So they they haven't even asked the question. Right. And they're not going to find out what causes schizophrenia if they have no idea where thoughts come from. You know, they haven't. They haven't even looked at it. They haven't asked the question. I, 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 a normal guy, you could stand back and watch the thoughts flow into your head. You know, and if you're if you can do that, then then who's the watcher? Who's the one that's watching these thoughts come into your head? Right. You know, so you're not your thoughts if you can watch them. So here's these thoughts gabbing, da da da, da telling you this, telling you that this guy's no good. This is the what the constant chatter, you know. And who's listening? Who's the one that's listening? You're not your thoughts if you're if you're the one that's listening to these things. If you can stand back and watch them, you're not your thoughts, and they believe you are. You know. It's obvious that you are not, and, and I've had you know, s some real intense experiences with that that proved to me, no doubt, that I wasn't my thoughts, right. that, that many of them come from somewhere else. And that's exactly what's happening with schizophrenics. Those thoughts are not theirs. They do not belong to them. You know, they, are, they are invaders, and they're very real, and they're very dangerous. Yeah. And here they are going, well, these things are hallucinations. You know? and, and 
you know, the schizophrenics try to tell them, no, they're not. They're they're very real. Look look what happens when when somebody has a psychotic break for the first time. You know, they try to tell their friends, oh, uh, hey, I'm I'm hearing these voices that are calling me names and and they're very nasty and they're giving me nightmares and uh, they're telling me all kinds of awful stuff. And the friends go, what? You know, you're you're strange. You know, like it starts spooking them and their friends start pulling away. So they they're kind of hesitant. They learn that they can't tell other people and that other people don't hear these things. So they kind of keep them to themselves, you know. And <laughs> so the next next people they usually tell are their their parents. You know, so they start withdrawing. They start acting. They're moody. Uh, they're upset. They get upset at little things. They get abusive. Uh, and then they tell their parents, "Well, I'm I'm hearing these voices, and they're awful, and they're telling me rotten things about myself and everybody else." And and the parents are like, "Oh, oh, oh something's wrong here." And Finally, after they they had enough of the the abuse and the uh, emotional tantrums and the withdrawals and the depression and they know something's wrong, they haul their kid to a psychiatrist, and the 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 patient says, "Well, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing voices." And the psychiatrist goes, "Oh, well, then you're nuts. Nobody else hears voices. You're crazy. You're you're psychotic. You're a lunatic. Your 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 brain is broken. You've got a chemical imbalance in your brain, which they have absolutely no proof for. None. Zero. Matter of fact, it's been disproved. And if you look at the drug uh, advertisements today, you, oh, it's believed to be a chemical imbalance of the brain, and these medicines they they write that imbalance temporarily at least. There's no evidence, none whatsoever, of a chemical imbalance or any other kind of imbalance or any kind of other physical cause. None. Zero. But yet they're putting this out. They're telling these patients, you've got a chemical imbalance in your brain. You've got to be on these toxic, nasty, antipsychotic medications for the rest of your life. There is no other cure. There's nothing else that could be done. And the side effects on those things are awful. Now, there was one professor in Turkey who watched a shaman cure schizophrenics time after time after time. And he was a very, uh, what do you call it, notable professor. I mean, he had lots of, he had books published and lots of articles published, and he was a, a solid, hardcore academic. So he went to kind of like a medical journal, and he got them to publish what he had seen. And he wrote this article and said, well, you know, I watched this myself. Maybe the medical establishment ought to take a look at this. And that's all he was doing was suggesting they take a look at this. And he just got attacked all up one side and down the other. They attacked the, the, the article. They attacked the journal. They attacked the publisher. They attacked him. They said, you're bringing this back to the Stone Age. They wanted nothing to do with it. They didn't want to hear it. They mocked him. They insulted him. It was incredible. And he sent me one of the uh, responses from some highfalutin woman who was a doctor of philosophy or something in in Oxford. And I read it and I was like shocked. I was like, this woman has never spoken to a psychotic. She's never been around one. She doesn't know what's going on. She knows nothing. Man, I wrote her a scathing letter. I said, you've got, basically, you've got your head so far up your butt, you're never going to see the light of day. 
You've never spoken to these people. You've never talked to them. You've never even seen one. You've never lived in the one. And here you are running this guy down for what he knows to be the truth. And I, I sent that off to her. And I said, I'm looking forward to hearing back from you. Never, never responded. So the academic establishment does not want this information out. It threatens them and their knowledge, and it threatens the pharmaceutical industry. You know, now those drugs do work temporarily as long as you're taking them. You know, and they only work because they calm the person down. The voices want the victim upset. They want them paranoid. They want them frightened. They want them anxious. They, they, they want to generate negative emotional energy. And then that energy disappears. Yeah. And that happened for years. Now, we've lost the track of how barbaric psychiatry's got. I mean, we're off the track of the history. I don't know if you want to go back to it. It, it keeps going. It gets worse. No, just let, let's just get into the the part with you of uh, what you experience as far as the demonic in 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 your research when you begin to realize like man this is like you know we're dealing with the demonic here we're not we're not dealing with just just this isn't normal there's something you know spiritual when was your realization of this well that t that took years and it and it it required evidence that was well beyond you know, it, it was like it was well beyond the point that I should have realized this. But it started off while I was working in the psych hospital. I was working in a psychiatric rehabilitation center there. And our job was to give the mentally ill patient to, to skim off the, the highest functioning of mentally ill patients in the entire hospital, train them with job skills, and then turn them loose so they wouldn't be dependent on the hospital anymore. And make connections out in the in, in the community where they can get their meds and and function. So we had to get them functional. It wasn't just uh, uh, you know kind of dumbing them down so they're not causing problems like the rest of the hospital. We actually needed to get these people functional and out of the hospital, which was a whole different ballpark than just dumbing them down. So the, the when I first got to the hospital. I remember the first days, um, the, they had a central kitchen where everybody would go to eat. And, and Milledgeville was in the middle of nowhere. You know, it was 30 miles to the nearest town where you could go get a hamburger. I mean, it was just a small, sleepy town and, and this giant psychiatric hospital right there, which, which, you know, most of the people in the town worked at that hospital. And the first time I was confronted with this was when one patient uh, cut off his penis with a razor blade. He was a, a psychotic patient, and back then there were no cell phones. There were there were you know uh, just the, the dial-up phones. Um, there was no internet. Um, the nerve center for the entire hospital was the central kitchen where everybody would go to eat, and that's where information would be traded about who was doing what and who was what was happening on different units and which psychiatrists were being attacked, and that that was kind of like the grapevine nerve center. So uh, when I heard about this patient who cut off his penis, it, it turned out that he worked in a, uh, he was in a psychiatric unit where one of my friends worked who went through the same program I did at graduate school. And, uh, you know, I asked, uh, I asked Ed, I said, you know, how about do me a favor, look this guy up and ask him why he cut off his penis. 
out here, I was curious again, asking questions. And uh, so he goes, oh, okay, I'll do that. And I said, okay, I'll meet you at dinner tonight. Uh, you know, so I met him that night at dinner, and I said, well, did you ask him? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, what did he say? What did he say? And he said, he said he didn't need it. And I went, okay. <laughs> it was like they they were doing these, and, and it was never anything positive or, or productive. Um, it was it was always something negative and nasty and and vile, like like slitting their wrists or spreading feces all over the place. Uh, it was just it, it was always awful stuff negative destructive stuff and and it it was like a theme and and they it was almost like as soon as a, a, a schizophrenic patient started to succeed at anything they would all somehow find a way to sabotage themselves and fail that was the first thing i noticed you know that 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 was pervasive among all of them Another thing I noticed real quick is that they would all eventually go off their medications, you know, and and that puzzled me. It's like because the medications were the only things that were keeping them sane. Another thing I noticed in the early days is that the assaults on psychiatrists were very much higher than any other employee at the hospital. I mean, it was higher than upon do regular doctors, nurses, psychiatric nurses, counselors, and equal to attendants who were spending 24 hours a day on the units with these guys. The assault rate was equal against psychiatrists. I'm like, what? what is going on? What are psychiatrists doing that are inflaming these guys in 15 or 20 minutes? They see them a month because their assault rate and you know, I have I have information on that. There there was a study done on 120,000 assaults from 1987 to 1992 over those five years. The assault rate for all jobs was 12.6 per thousand. The assault rate for doctors other than psychiatrists was 16.2 per thousand. The assault rate for custody staff, these are attendants who are around these patients 24 hours a day, was 69 per a thousand. The assault rates for psychiatrists for the very little time they spent with these individuals was like probably 20 minutes a month was 65 per a hundred thousand or 5.9 times that of the normal population. You know, what was going on there? You know, why were psychotic patients attacking psychiatrists at such a high rate? And not other medical staff, not not other doctors, not nurses, just psychiatrists. It, it made no sense to me, but I, I noticed it. Uh, another thing that started coming up um, was um, when they when the chaplain would hold the ice cream socials in in the this big hall they had in the psychiatric rehab center. Um, all the other psychiatric patients would go except my schizophrenic patients. They would stay on the dingy ward when, with the lights out. and They'd sit and lay there and stare at the ceiling or, or they, they didn't want to go. And, and ice cream and cake were hard to come by in that place. So I, I started asking them, why, why, you know, why aren't you going? Oh, I, well, I don't like preachers or I don't believe in God or, or you know, I tried to read the Bible and the voices got louder. And what? 
He tried to read the Bible, and the voices got louder. So when I got a piece of information like that, I would remember it, but I wouldn't just trust the word of, of one or two patients. I'd start asking dozens of them. You know, have you ever read the Bible? What happened? What did the voices do when you read the Bible? And and the responses I was getting back was they hated it. You know, they would get louder. They would distract me. Uh, they would say it's a bunch of crap. Uh, one guy said Jesus couldn't even save himself. What makes you think uh, he's going to save you? Why are you wasting your time on this garbage? You've got other things to do. Uh, I, I mean, there was a, a vehement response to, to patients reading the Bible. Now, on the other hand, I started looking into what other things they were reading. And you go to their bed stands, and here's all these horror novels, you know, murder mysteries and, and war books and, and uh, you know, crime stories and <clears throat> all this negative crap. That they, that's what they were reading instead of anything positive. And uh, I, I started wondering about that. And uh, uh, one guy said, well, I can't remember anything I read in the Bible anyway, but, but here they are reading all these other books. So I decided to do an experiment. I got one, one paragraph out of the Bible, and I took one paragraph out of one of their murder mystery books. And I said, okay, uh, I'm going to read this paragraph to you. And I want you to write down everything you remember about what I said, word for word, if you can. So I would read them, you know, the horror story uh, paragraph. Jeez, they almost got it word for word. I mean, they got the gist of the entire story. And then I'd read him the, the paragraph. And they, these were just uh, schizophrenics who were hearing voices. You know, that those were the ones I was I was looking into. I'd, I'd read them the, the phrase from the Bible, and they couldn't remember hardly any of it. And that was repeatable. It happened time after time after time. And I'm like, why is that happening? Yeah. Why are they reading horror stories instead of positive books? Yeah. Um, that preachers, they, they, they avoided preachers. They avoided church. They avoided anything spiritual. Uh, so I was, I was looking at that. Now, what, what really, I, I saw that, but I, I didn't know why that was happening. But what really puzzled me was that they would always go off their medications. You know, eventually, it appears like almost all of them would quit taking their medications. And, and that, those meds, as bad as they were, were the only things we had at the time that would bring them back to sanity. They were awful. They had terrible side effects, uh, but they weren't anywhere. Those side effects weren't anywhere near as bad as being floridly psychotic, where you hear voices telling you to kill yourself and and screaming at you and and yelling insults at you and nightmares and and telling you all these rotten things about yourself. And uh, I mean, what they would say. I, I have a. a a list uh, of, of the kind of things the voices would tell them. They, they'd say, no one will ever love you because you're a piece of crap. Uh, you're a waste of flesh. You're, you're, you're poor and you're going to stay poor because that's what you deserve. Uh, neither you or your family or anybody else cares about you because you're rotten and you don't deserve love. Um, you have whatever disease you have because you deserve it. Uh, you, you have no talent. You're stupid. Uh, who would ever hire you on a job? You're a failure. You're worthless. Uh, um, you're never going to succeed at anything, so give up. Um, you know, um, 
you're the worst thing you, uh, you're the worst thing you've ever done and there there's no way to forgive yourself i mean whatever you know the worst thing they did uh on the on the other hand uh you know positive people would make them sick you know um uh, they'd say you have no reason to feel good you don't you don't deserve respect you're a mess uh uh, you'll never get what you want. Your dreams will never come true. Um, <clears throat> your your dreams are are garbage. Um, uh, you don't deserve respect. Uh, I mean, it just goes on and on and on like that. Uh, the kind of things that the voices would say. So I, I would like. Well, if if these are hallucinations, why do they run these consistently negative patterns? You know, hallucinations are random. You know, you got good ones, you got bad ones, you got some in between that are neutral. You know, you got everything mixed up. They're not consistent. They don't run any kind of pattern. They're totally random hallucinations are. And here's the psychiatrist saying, well, these are hallucinations. You know, uh, and, and the, the patient are saying, well, no, they're not. They're real. No, no. I'm telling you, these are hallucinations. You're sick. Your mind is broken. You got to take these meds. And then there's nothing else that can help you. You know. If you don't take these meds, we're going to lock you up. So they eventually go off the meds. So if you look at it, it's like, you know, a simile would be, okay, what would you rather have, uh, a bad case of the flu or the bubonic plague? You know, so you're given a, a, a choice between two bad choices. One of them much worse than the other. And these guys are consistently choosing the bubonic plague. They're consistently choosing to go insane again. And, you know, that, that might, they might have some explanation for it the first time they do it. You know, the first time they go off their meds because they start feeling okay and they think that, you know, <clears throat> psychosis is like a cold or an infection where you take these pills and you get rid of it. But no. You start, as soon as you go off those pills, the voices come back. Yeah. But how many times do you have to go off and the voices come back before you realize you've got to stay on those pills? So I would start asking the ones who would go off their pills several times already, why did you do that? Did you want to go insane? They go, no. Well, you know, why, why did you go off your pills? Well, because of the side effects. They would say, and that's you know when I asked the nurses and the doctors the same question, why do they keep going off their pills? They'd say the same thing. Uh, they'd say, well, the side effects, or because they're crazy. Nobody knows why they do what they do. So I, I developed these two forms, and on one form, I I had the patient list. <clears throat> now these were patients who'd repeatedly gone off their meds over and over again. On one form, I'd give it to them and I'd said, list all, all the side effects you've experienced while you were on these meds. Now, they don't all experience the same ones. They don't all experience all of them. So I just wanted them to write down the side effects that they actually experienced. So once they wrote those down, I'd take that form back and then I'd give them another form with all the symptoms of schizophrenia, psychosis, two pages of these horrible symptoms. And I'd say, okay, check each one you experienced when you were off your meds. And they would check, you know, a bunch of these. 
And then I'd hand them both back to them and I'd say, which one is worst? The side effects or, or being crazy? And they'd say, well, being crazy is worst. And then I'd ask, well, then why do you keep going off your medicines? And you know what they said? And this is, this, this went on for years. This went on for probably three years. And nobody had the answer. None of the staff had the answer. They have, they had to have the answer somewhere. So I felt like a lunatic myself asking the same question over and over and over again. Why? Here's the evidence in front of you. You know, you know that going off those meds and going psychotic is much, much worse than the side effects of the meds. So it's not the side effects of the meds. You just told me yourself that the symptoms of psychosis are much worse than the side effects of the meds. So why are you going off your meds? Why have you done that five, six times already? And you know what they'd say? I don't know. And that went on for three or four years. I don't know. I don't know. They didn't know. They couldn't explain it. And I'm like, if you can't, if you don't know who does. I mean, then, how do you, I mean, but you know, I mean, I believe sometimes those, those, and that medication can put you in a weird feeling. I've known people that were bipolar, you know, supposedly bipolar and would take these, uh, psychotropic drugs and, uh, they would just be like zombies, man, you know, and they, they themselves would feel that, you know, and they wouldn't want, but even though they had these issues, even though I had, I had a friend of mine that would have cut himself and, um, you know, and, if he wasn't taking these, these, uh, psychotropic drugs, you know? And so, but when he took it, it just made him like, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's just, you know, they're just, they're just numbing the pain. They're just like, just, you know, masking it by, by well, th dumbing them that, down. That's right. It dumbs them down. It calms them down. Okay. And that's not what the voices want. The voices want them upset. They want them. They want to generate that negative emotional energy. But, but they lose at both ends. The individual loses at oh, both yeah. ends. They yeah. either, it's, it's either, a, yeah, either it's they, a bad choice right, either way. Right. Either way, but, it's a bad choice. Either you given, you know, they can't take. There's another choice, though. You know, for me, being a Christian, I know that there's another choice. You mean? Well, yeah, but these guys aren't right, there. Right, right. They're not there. So. At, at at both ends, they're losing on both. They either well, they, it's it's like this. What do you want? You want uh, dirty water or you want muddy water? You know? It's, no, 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 no. It's worse than that. Do you want dirty water or do you want polluted sewer water? You know, right, right. psychotic. Being psychotic is like worse than hell. It's it's hell on earth. You know, you have these voices threatening you, calling you names, keeping you awake all all night, telling you your people are chasing you and they're going to murder you. Uh, hearing voices come out of the walls, demons appear at night, shadows appear at night, uh, noises outside of the house. Uh, I, I mean, it's much worse than drinking dirty water. You know? So when you look at it, it's like, okay, what do you want, the, the, a bad case of the flu or you want the bubonic plague? And they were choosing the bubonic plague. It, it's not an equal choice. It's not dirty water or, or muddy water. It's, it's dirty water or poisonous sewer water. I mean, the, being psychotic is, is much, much worse. And time after time, they wouldn't know. They wouldn't know. And then there was, you know, at, near the end of the seven years that I spent at the state hospital, there was one gal who was doing really well. And she had gone off her medicines the third time. They were about to kick her out of the program because if they wouldn't stay off their meds, there's no way they're going to be able to function. So uh, 
you know, I think the psychiatrist told her, you know, we're, um, th- we're thinking about cutting you off. And she told her mother and her mother was in South Georgia and she called me and she said, don't do that. Don't, don't, I'm going to, I would like to come up and I'd like to talk to you and we'll talk to her together to see if we can't get her to, to stay on these meds because I can't handle her. I tried it before. I, I can't deal with her down here. Uh, and I've got to work. And, and <clears throat> so she was virtually begging me and I said, okay, c- come on up. So it was like a four-hour drive for her to get there, and and I said, "Come on up next Friday, and and I'll uh, we'll bring her in and talk to her." So we we all got in together. The mother was there, I was there, and the and the girl was there, and uh, you know we were both of us were the mother and I were asked, "Well, why did you do this? Why did you keep going off your meds? Well, you know what happens when you go off your meds." And the mother was begging her, "Tell us, please tell us." Finally. She said, you know, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to uh, – you're going to think this is nuts. And I said, well, I've, I've heard crazy – I've heard a lot of crazy things since I've worked here. Just tell us what what's going on. And she said the voices told me that the psychiatrist was poisoning me and that those meds were poison. And, man, I, that shocked me. It was like, boom, that explains why <clears throat> all these other patients – attacked their psychiatrist because they felt that the psychiatrist was poisoning them. Here it was, right in front of me. You know, the voices are telling her the medications are poison, and the side effects of those medications are the result of being poisoned, and that the psychiatrist is poisoning her. And that felt right in line with all these others. So I began asking that question to other psychotic patients. When you go off your meds, you know, did you feel that you were being poisoned? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's like, here's the voices telling them that they're being poisoned and to go off those meds. And it and here's patient after patient after patient after patient verifying that same thing. And I'm like, holy cow. Right. Have you have you um have you ever been to downtown L.A.? Yes. Uh, you ever <clears throat> been on the, uh, the Skid Row area? Uh, well, so the Skid Row area is like, oh, you know, it's, yeah, it's there's in, a lot of psychotic yeah, people there. Right. So it's like in the Garmic district, the fashion district, you know, we're all where they sell everything. Well, anything, anyways, there, that place is completely filled. I, I have a, I have a buddy of mine that works at the union rescue mission in downtown LA on Skid Row. And, you know, we, I went over there to have lunch with him and we just took a walk on Skid Row. He's like, come on, come walk with me, man. I just want to show you some stuff. And there's just people everywhere talking to themselves, yelling at yes. other people, doing yeah. all, and peeing on the street, you know, shooting heroin yeah. right there yeah. and right in front of the police station. I'm talking about peeing on the police station. The police officers just walk out and just don't even bother bat an eye. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's not illegal to right, be crazy. Right. right. So it, it's filled out there. So it, it, it's crazy because it's there's so many people that are like this. So well, let many me tell people. you what happened. You know, back in the 70s, I believe, Proposition 13 came about in California. It was a a tax revolt by the citizens who were tired of paying all these high income taxes and, and, and other taxes. And they said, we're not standing for it anymore. We're not going to pay these astronomical taxes. So they passed Proposition 13 and the tax, the taxes were forced down. So that, eliminated the psychiatric hospitals, the big state hospitals where these people used to be taken care of. And they were dumped out onto the streets. And that's what happened in Georgia. 
They emptied out that entire hospital and they closed it down. 200 buildings, 10,000 or so patients. And they they said, oh, well, we're going to treat them in the local mental health centers and they're going to go to the mental health center and and we're going to fund the mental health centers. But they wouldn't even take their medicines while they were being handed to them in the hospital. What makes them think they're going to go to a mental health center when most of them don't have transportation? They have no way to get there. They don't want to take those meds in the first place, and they don't want anything to do with a psychiatrist. They're not going to go there, and they didn't. So what's your opinion? What's your opinion on why they're doing that? Doing what? Why why they're closing down hospitals and just sending? Well, they don't want to pay for them. They're expensive, but. You know where the the other half – so you're seeing half of them on the streets. You know where the other half are? They're in prison. The psych, the psych hospitals in the U.S., throughout the U.S., are now the prisons. So you have these psychotic patients who have to steal and rob and sell drugs or, or do drugs to self-medicate and then commit crimes, and they get thrown into prison. And then they're brutalized in the prisons, and they're made hard – and and even worse, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. And then when their time is up, they give them two weeks worth of medication, send them out the front door with 50 bucks and say, adios, go now, to the now, local mental health center when you run out of meds. Now, you're saying that these these psych hospitals are losing, the, you know, they don't have enough money. But a lot of these prisons, they get money for having oh, prisoners. So Well, yeah. You yeah. Know, so they, it, they, it's, they it's, get wow. uh, that's part of the population. So you got the prison industrial complex, but then the mental health care in those prisons are pathetic. One case in point, you know, I remember when I was working there, you know, I could spot these guys like like bird dog after all the experience I'd had with them. There was one patient who was he was psychotic. He was hearing voices and those voices were telling him to stab another inmate. Now, what happened was the chief psychologist and psychiatrist were, were trying to look good. And by looking good, they had to cut down on the medication expenditures, which were astronomical. So what the chief psychologist did was put a stooge in the medical unit, a, a stooge psychologist, who when we sent somebody who was psychotic over there, he would relabel their diagnosis because they were, you know, PhDs and doctors. And then they would send them back to the unit and say, oh, no, this person isn't psychotic. They're a personality disorder. But this one guy, he was ramping up and he was hearing voices and he was threatening to kill this other this other inmate. So I sent him over there a second time and I'm documenting all this in the in the medical record. When he's hearing voices, they're telling him to attack this guy. The voices are getting stronger. He's not sleeping. He's becoming increasingly unstable. He's disoriented. I mean, you know, oodles of documentation. Sent him over there a second time. And that stooge psychologist sent him back again, saying he's not psychotic. He's a personality disorder. I said, he's going to kill somebody. Documented again, said this is getting worse. This guy's going to attack somebody. He's psychotic. Sent him over there again with these pages of documentation. The stooge psychologist sent him back again and said he's not psychotic. He doesn't require medications. He's a personality disorder. So they're saving a few pills there. This guy stabbed that other inmate 13 times you know after he got back a week later and i was so furious i could not go to work because i was afraid i beat the shit out of the chief psychologist i was i was just furious so they will not give them meds in the prison unless they are actually acting out so 
here they are getting brutalized. They're, 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 and other inmates use them as, as uh, torpedoes. So they'll take a, a paranoid, psychotic inmate, and the gangs will, will make him go off his meds and tell him, hey, this, this jerk over in, with the other gang, he's, he's going to kill you. You better go get him first. And they'll whip him up into a frenzy, and then that psychotic inmate will go over and stab that guy like a, like a human torpedo. And then you know he's crazy, and they lock him down, and they don't care. You know, it, it's it's just it's crazy what they're doing in there. It was much cheaper to keep them in the psych hospital because now you got you got these crazy prisoners running around upsetting the the regular po- patient population. No telling what they're going to do, and you have to provide all this security for them. You know, and, and it costs much more to keep them in a prison than it did to keep them in the mental hospitals. It, it's nuts. It's crazy what they're doing. It's totally crazy. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I mean, I feel like, it, you know, that, that this is is this is just causing chaos, you know, you know, and 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 the powers that be and the, the spiritual aspect to it loves chaos. Loves oh, yeah. Chaos. Yeah. The negative entities, they, right. they love that. Right. So but it but it was at the prison where I got the most research done, because at the at the state hospital, the the underlying silent rule was you do not upset psychotic patients for any reason unless it's absolutely necessary i mean you you don't ask them questions that upset them you you don't do anything that upsets them that that's unnecessary unless you absolutely have to so asking them questions about their voices upset them and you know they didn't want to answer questions about their voices and the voices apparently would tell them to go you know when i'd start asking them about their their voices and and what the voices were telling them and and you know trying to figure out what was going on in their heads you know they would go tell the psychiatrist oh he's upsetting us by asking us questions about the voices and i'd get pulled up in front of the psychiatrist and in front of the you know and, and you go, don't you be asking them questions about their hallucinations what you're doing is you're reinforcing their hallucinations you're making them worse by asking them questions and and acting like they're real and 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 you're just giving them attention and you're making them worse and by then i knew that wasn't the case but i was ordered to stop twice twice by psychiatrists they wouldn't even let you ask questions to the to the psychotic patients about what their voices were saying they they would even block that it was unbelievable once i got to the prison it was a different story i mean the 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 noise level in that place you know the ambient chaos uh, was so high normally that a, a a psychotic patient complaining about a psych asking him questions about his voices it it didn't even break the threshold of of notice you know that they would laugh at that so you know i got away for years by uh, of studying their voices and i i I formulated uh, i always had a group of patients around me who were psychotic prisoners who agreed to tell me everything their voices were telling them in real time you know, while we're in the office, you know, okay, the voices are telling me this now. The voices are telling me you're full of crap. The voices are telling me to leave the office. The voices are telling me not to listen to whatever you say. You know, and, uh, you know, as I was talking to these guys, I had one, one prisoner come up and he said, uh, hey, you know, I, I repeat the 23rd Psalm and my voices react like worms thrown onto a hot frying pan. I went, that's interesting. So, you know, I made copies of the 23rd Psalm and I, I would give them to these, you know, these were 
this was a group of prisoners who uh, it, it was really a, a, a really unique situation because they had to trust me and I had to trust them. And they have a long history of not trusting psych and being medicated by psych and being abused by psych and being locked up by psych. And, you know, on the other hand, if, if they're telling me their voices are telling them to beat up a guard or something like that and they go and do it and administration found out that I knew about that and didn't have them locked up, then my job was in jeopardy. So it was like walking, kind of walking on a razor blade, you know. Um, but it, it worked out really well. You know, they got to trust me and I, I made an agreement with them that, you know, you know, listen, as, as long as you're not going to hurt yourself or anybody else, I'm not going to interfere. But one of the, one of the things I want to do is find out what these things are and how they operate. And most of them were just as curious about their voices as I was. They wanted to know what they were too. So I started handing out the 23rd Psalm and lo and behold, the voices hated it. You know, they reacted to it. They hated it. They just got real volatile. They got real nasty. And I'm like, well, what kind of hallucination would do that? You know, so so you got what psychiatry calls hallucinations that are running repeatedly negative patterns all the time. They don't swerve from that negative pattern. It's always negative. You know, what holds the voices on that negative trajectory? What holds them there? Why are they there? Why do they stay negative? Why are they always abusing the patient, telling them rotten things, uh, running other people down, calling them vile names, keeping them awake at night? Why is it always negative? If it's a hallucination, why aren't they? Why isn't it all over the place? Why aren't they sometimes positive? You know, sometimes neutral. Why are they always negative? What holds them that way? Why are they reacting to the 23rd Psalm in a, in a negative manner? And this was time after time. So I'd hand out patients <clears throat> that 23rd Psalm and, and, you know, I was still learning back then too. And what we found was this was a way that they could, some way that they could get back at the voices. You know, by repeating that Psalm, the voices didn't like it. And, and, you know, they had some control. They could get back and hit the voices with that. You know, and then, um, I found out that, uh, there was a book called, uh, what is it? Uh, I think it was 30 Years Among the Dead or 20, I think it was 30 Years Among the Dead written by a psychiatrist where he would uh, administer these <clears throat> static electric shocks to his psychotic patients and the voices would be driven out. The, I, I read his book and the voices said they, uh, they experienced those static shocks like thunderstorms and they were extremely painful for them, for the voices. And then his wife was psychic and, and the spirit would leave the patient and the, the, the psychic wife would pick up on them and then talk them into the light. And once they disappeared into the light, they never came back. That voice was gone. So I went, that's, that's interesting. And I'm like, what can I do that would mimic that? Okay. So when the, the first, tactic the 23rd psalm when the chief psychologist found out i was handing out the 23rd psalm to psychotic patients for them to repeat he ordered me to stop he said don't do that you know you're you're interfering with church and state and i'm like but but it's helping them no you stop so i was ordered to stop that so you know i couldn't do that anymore <clears throat> and 
so uh, the static thing was was they kept like, okay, what? How can I verify this? What do I? What, what can I use to verify that a, a, a shock like that would will stun the voices and shut them up for a while? And I thought about that for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it's like, what? What can I use? What can I use? What? You know, I couldn't bring a shock machine into the prison and start shocking prisoners. I, they'd fire me and lock me up myself. But I was standing talking to a secretary one day, and I, I, my attention got drawn to a rubber band on her desk. And I went, oh, you know. So I, I <clears throat> took a rubber band and I gave it to one of the prisoners that I, you know, I trusted. And I said, uh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you this. You put it around your wrist and every time the voices start talking to you, you snap it, you know, and then repeat the 23rd Psalm, which this guy had memorized. And what I found is that when he snapped that rubber band and stung his wrist, the voices actually shut up for like a minute or two. And he, he told me that the voices experienced that, sh that slap of the rubber band much sharper than, than actually he did. It hurt them more than it hurt him. You know? And I went, that, isn't that interesting? So I started handing out rubber bands and asking them to snap them. And I found out that by the, <clears throat> by the next session, next week, most of them had broken their rubber bands or lost them. But the rubber band did work to, to shut them up temporarily. So year after year, while I was at the prison for, well, I think it was what, maybe 18 years, I experimented with ways to interfere with the voices, you know, like the 23rd Psalm, like the rubber band shock, you know, little steps at a time that would interfere with what they were doing. And then I, the, the prisoners in, in my select group would bring me back feedback. You know, how did that work over the last week? Well, it, it worked pretty well or it didn't work at all or, or it worked sometimes. or you know. So they were giving me feedback about all these little things we were doing to interfere with the voices. Finally, when I learned enough to really begin to interfere with them, they started coming in and saying the voices are getting really pissed off with you. They don't want me coming here. They're telling me not to come for these appointments. They're telling me you're stupid and you're crazy and not to listen to anything you have to say and not to keep these appointments. And they, they don't want me coming in here. <clears throat> and, uh, they came anyway. So, you know, as we develop more things to interfere with the voices that, you know, they come back and they were going, uh, you know, the voices are getting increasingly angry with you, you know, they're getting fed up, and I'm like, well, that's pretty strange. A hallucination is getting fed up with me, and uh, you know, they would call me names, and and you know, the patient would or the inmate would say, well, the voices are calling you a son of a bitch and a, a crazy jerk and and a, a, a lunatic. And I said, well, yeah, tell them to go, you know, eat crap and jump in a lake. Uh, so I, I kind of blew that off, and uh, then one day. Uh, uh, one of the inmates who was really making good progress and his voices were losing ground and getting weaker and weaker and weaker. He he comes to my office without an appointment, knocks on my door and he, he says, uh, the voices want to talk to you. I said, they, they want to talk to me personally. And that never happened before. You know, it was usually they were always the, the patient or the inmate was always the go between, you know, they would, they would tell me the voices are saying this, and I would tell them, well, tell the voices this. So they were always the go-between. There was never a direct communication between me and the voices. So, 
you know, I was I was kind of like shocked because this was like what twenty years or so I've been working. This is the first time that the voices wanted to talk to me personally. And I asked him, I said, they want to talk to me personally? And he goes, Yeah. Yeah. I said, Well, oh okay, come on in, have a seat. You know, what do they have to say? And his voice turned a little deeper, and out of his mouth came these words. You have no right to interfere with our way of life. And I was just stunned. I was like, what? And the, and the, the inmate said, those weren't my words. That came from them. I didn't say that. That's what they wanted me, you know, that's what they wanted to, to tell you. Our way of life, plural. You know, so it wasn't the inmate. And he, he said, that wasn't me. It wasn't the inmate talking. This was the voices warning me off, saying, you have no right to interfere with what we're doing. Now, one thing I noticed and I was curious about and I didn't understand was when the voices attacked the energy level of these inmates and, and even the, the psychotic patients at the hospital would drop. I mean, after an attack by the voices, these people had no energy. They couldn't even get out of bed. They had to drag themselves around. And I'm like, what is going with that? There's a one-to-one -one correspondence between these voices attacking them and their energy level dropping to zero. And I noticed that, but I couldn't account for it. <clears throat> and I, you know, I had that in the back of my mind. And I'm like, wait, what is going on here? What, what's happening? And, uh, so that same patient, I, did, I didn't stop working with him. And uh, he was getting better and better and better, and his voices were getting weaker, and they were coming less and less often. And then uh, one day I was reading a book by the shaman Miguel Ruiz, and he was talking about, you know, at that point I knew they, this wasn't, these voices weren't the patient. I mean, <clears throat> my denial system at that moment just collapsed. I mean, it just collapsed. And, you know, I, I stopped taking appointments the rest of the day and I was stunned, you know, with the realization. And, and this was after years. I can no longer deny that these things weren't separate entities. You know, that, that there was no, I, I, I couldn't try to explain like saying, oh, this is their subconscious or, or, or this is uh, all those explanations just blew to the wind. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind after that, that these things were separate entities different from the patient himself and that they were very destructive and that they wanted no interference. And, uh, I kept working with this guy and then I, I was reading this, uh, <clears throat> one book by Miguel Ruiz, the, the shaman. And it, it was talking about how these things were energy vampires and that they were separate and that they were feeding off of these individuals. <clears throat> and, and I had noticed that when after the voices attacked, these guys and some of them even during the attack would say, I can feel my energy leaving as, as the voices are screaming at me. So there was a consistent energy drop. And here's Miguel Ruiz saying these things are parasites. So I bring this book into the, into the prison. And I highlighted that chapter, uh, that, that, those few paragraphs, and I pulled in this one inmate whose voices were telling me, you have no right to interfere. And I said, I, I'd like to read you this chapter, and I'd like your opinion on it, or the, these, these paragraphs. So I started reading where 
uh, Miguel was talking about these these entities being uh, energetic parasites and and robbing these people of their life energy. And no sooner had I finished that paragraph, when I look look up at the the inmate, and he looks like a zombie. He's just staring at me with this strange affect. And then from right behind my head, there's this loud crackling noise, like like an arc welder. It was like crack, 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 crack. And I'm like, what the hell? And you know, I I look around. There's nothing there. And then this crackling noise starts moving up the right wall at a 45 degree angle toward the ceiling, and it's loud, and it's and it doesn't go away, and it's you know crack, 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 crack. And I'm looking at that, and then looking at the the inmate, and I'm going, he's going to attack. So I push my chair against the wall just in case he's going to come at me, because the only people that the only guards they put in the medical unit were female officers, and. And, you know, if you're if you're going to get attacked, they're going to be virtually you're on your own virtually, you know, until until and it might be some time before some male officers get in there. So I'm I'm going back and forth. I I didn't want to take my eyes off the inmate because I thought he was going to attack, but I wanted to see whatever this crackling noise was. And it's moving up the wall. Crack, 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 crack. You know, I'm going back and forth, back and forth. And he's just sitting there staring at me with this weird affect, you know, like a zombie. And I, I look at him. I said, do you hear that? And he just he doesn't answer. He's just staring at me. And I'm like, whoa, this is, this is, this is getting to be too much. And then that, that crackling moves over his head across the, the back part of the office. It's, it's crackling along the, the, the corner wall and boom, boom, crack, 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 crack. And it moves all the way across the office. And this is going on for like 20 seconds or half a minute now. I mean, it's not just a brief episode. And then the wall to my left, it starts moving at a 45 degree angle down right toward me. And I'm, I'm going back and forth, back and forth, looking at him, watching the crack. I see nothing. I smell nothing. But I certainly hear it. <clears throat> and it's loud. And then it jumps into this Rubbermaid trash can by my left leg. And it's crackling in the trash can. And I'm, I'm looking back and forth, back and I look in the trash can. There's nothing in there. It was cleaned by the inmate porter the night before. It is empty, except for this crackling noise. And then it just stops, suddenly stops. And I'm, I'm stunned. I mean, I'm just absolutely stunned. And I look at this guy and he's staring at me with this weird affect. And I'm like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm stunned. I'm like, what, what is going on? What just happened here? And then he slowly gets up and he goes, I gotta leave. And he shuffles out of the office and I'm like, yeah, go, go get the hell out of here. Go. <laughs> it's like, my God. And I was just, I was just stunned. I was just so relieved that he left. And, and once he leaves, I, I start examining the walls. There are no burn marks. There's no evidence of anything. I don't see anything. I don't smell anything. There's nothing there. There's no evidence that this actually happened. And I'm like, am I going insane? You know, what, what is going on here? So I walk out to the hall and I'm checking all the doors and, and all the doctor's doors are locked. And, and there's nobody there. I'm the only one in that part of the of the building. There was no explanation for this thing. Yeah. And and I was I was so stunned that I just canceled all the all my appointments for the rest of the day. And and I'm thinking, you know, what what is happening here? Yeah, am I going nuts? And I'm thinking, 
if if this whatever this thing is if it can make a physical sound outside of the patient like that if it can affect physical reality in that manner what else can it do how else can it affect physical reality and i started getting uh, shook up you know it's like well if it can do that what else can it do i mean cuz i thought i thought up until that time that whatever these things were you know and I, and I knew they were entities from that that last they interchanged you know some months before but i was thinking well they're stuck in the guy's head they can't come out <clears throat> they can't affect me they're they're stuck in his head they're not going to come out and get me this this was a, a horse of a totally different color they came out and they did affect physical reality and they moved around the room and and they jumped in the trash can by my leg and i was stunned i mean i was i was just i was just absolutely stunned you know i i took the next day off i'm like you know am i losing my marbles what is going on here um i didn't i was so scared that i didn't call that inmate back for probably a month and a half or two months and and finally I got the guts to, to call him back because my curiosity overcame my fear. And I asked the guards to bring him down to my office and he came in and he looked good. I was expecting him to look like crap. I was, you know, if, if they could do that and I wasn't around to interfere, you know, with what they were doing, I, I, I was thinking he would be, you know, beat the crap and he, he would have, you know, decompensated, but he looked good. And that should, that shocked me. You know, I was expecting him to look a whole lot worse. And he said, yeah, I've been doing what you taught me to, and I'm keeping them down. But they're, they haven't gone away. But they're much better than what they were. They don't, they're not hitting me as much. They're not hitting me as often. And he, he looked good. And I said, uh, you know, the last time you were here, did you hear that crackling that went around the office? And he said, yeah, I, I heard it, but I'm surprised you did. And uh, I said, what was that? And he said, that was them. I said, the voices? And he said, yeah, that was the voices. I said, what, what, what were they doing? What was that all about? He said, they were trying to scare you off. I said, well, they did a damn good job of it. You know? And I, I remembered what he looked like when he left. And I said, what were they telling you as you left my office and walked out into the hall? He said, they were telling me to go get a shank and stick it in your gut. A shank is like a homemade prison knife. And uh, I asked him, well, why didn't you do it? You know, and I'm thinking, yeah, I've worked with this guy for six months. I've helped him along. We know each other pretty well. And he turns around and he looks at me and he goes, I couldn't find one. You know, and nobody would give me one. Man, that's, that's crazy, man. As we, as, we get to the, as we get to the end of this right here, what is it that you want, you want to leave the audience with? I mean, there was a lot of information that you gave us within this, these two hours. Just, uh, I mean, what can what can people do? Like, you know, people that are from the outside looking in, what what could they do? Well, they don't just hit psychotics. They don't just hit schizophrenics. They're most noticeable there because that I mean, they have control. You know, they hit us all. Every single negative thought you have about yourself or somebody else is put there by them. Every every time a negative thought comes into your head. What they do is, is they, <clears throat> they, they actually give you their mind, you know. So those thoughts that come into your head, those negative thoughts, those nasty thoughts, those, those demeaning thoughts are not yours. They don't belong to you. 
these things have to generate negative emotional energy, and that's what they feed off. So w- what I saw when when the, after the voices attacked these patients and their energy level went down to nothing, and I measured that too on a series of forms, you know, one to ten questionnaire, and it was consistent. After the voices attacked, their energy level was always half or better what it was before was before the the attack there was a consistent energy drain and i would ask them where does your energy go and they didn't know you know this is what they survive off of that negative emotional energy and they hit us all and they know all where you, all your sores all your psychic sores are and when something comes up that triggers one of those psychic sores like somebody pushes a button they just jump in there and they just pour on the gasoline you know, they want to generate negative emotional energy, and they that's what they feed off of. So you look at the world. You look at the TV. Look what's coming over the TV. Negative, murder. How, you know, the, what, what does a, a teenager see by the time they, they reach teenage years? Hundreds of murders on TV. Violence, constant violence. You know, you, you look around, and here's the wars and, and the killings and the stabbings and and. and the bombing in Afghanistan and, and this guy's your enemy, that guy's your enemy and the military industrial complex. Now, finally, Trump is starting to straighten that out. He's going, enough of this, enough wars, enough of this crap. The deep state, they are, they are, they are crawling with these entities. They're crawling with them. And these, these things have ruled the earth since the time beginning. And, and now things are changing. And like the Bible said, all will be seen all it'll all come to light and that's what's happening right now with these child molesters and and these deep state operatives it's all coming to light now but they they get us all it's not just schizophrenics they get us all right it's fear you know they 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 thrive off that they They thrive off off that they are they are fear so when you go and you uh, just imagine if you're living in Afghanistan and you're seeing bombs being dropped around around you, just just imagine the type of fear that that brings inside of that person in the community. Uh, imagine all the pain and the loss of, of family members that have died, you know, children that have died, the loss and the brokenheartedness of all these family members that are around. Just that, you know, I mean, look, look at the drug addict, just see the effect that it has when he's shooting heroin, how it affects his mother, his father, his his child, you know, it's just a, a massive effect of, of, you know, people being locked up in prison, gone for, for years yeah. at a time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. giving, you know, uh, uh, over small things, it's just, you know, all of this stuff is, it's just building up, you know, the yeah. music, all yeah. it, all it, all it produces is garbage, you know, gar- exactly. garbage, exactly. Will, garbage will always be uplifted if you're producing garbage. Anything positive, anything that brings change will always be suppressed. But that's and that's what, exactly what happens right. in the prison. Every time we tried to do something positive to help those guys, it was destroyed. <clears throat> right. It didn't survive. The prisons are feeding grounds for these things. You know, they're, they're graduate schools for criminals. And, and then they release these guys. And I, I've seen them release prisoners that I knew would kill somebody psychotic prisoners who would kill somebody within a month and and they would let them go and and just walk out the door with 50 bucks and yet if one one of these prisoners ever escapes it hits the news oh this guy lock your doors this prisoner's loose he's a murderer he killed somebody lock your doors and be afraid get your guns out i mean he's loose in the community and they're releasing hundreds of these people a month into the community right. without a word being said it is insane what they're doing it's totally insane right 
Well, Jerry, I thank you for coming on. You know, I'm definitely going to have you back on again. And I appreciate all your work and, and all the information. It's a lot of rich information that you're giving. And I just, I just, you know, I pray and I hope that those listening now, you will understand that we are in a spiritual battle. And if you are a believer and, you know, you, even if you're not, just understand that if there is darkness and there's got to be light, man, you know, so. Well, you that's know. exactly right. And it is a spiritual battle. And it, and it, now the good guys are starting to win. Right. You know, everything is coming to light. And we, we have a book coming out shortly. Um, I'll let you know when it does come out. It ought to be out within the next few weeks, e explaining a lot of this and going through the history and, and point by point of, of what's going on. And um, Yeah, I would love for you to come back on and, and you know, when, you, when that book comes out and talk a little bit about it. And But uh, Jerry, I thank you for coming on. How can people reach you and how can they get a hold of your, your research? Okay. Uh, well, I, th I think probably the safest way to reach me right now is uh, through Sherry's website. It's keyholejourney.com. And she has a, uh, a contact uh, section. Uh, we've also posted a lot of good information there. If you go to the paranormal section, um, uh, you go to topics, the paranormal section, and then there's uh, videos and articles that we've posted and written. Uh, my Facebook page is um, Engineering Sanity, I believe it is. Um, so we have a Facebook page. We have a, a group uh, where people who hear voices can get together and talk with one another, where people who are interested in studying voices are joining in and asking these guys, what is it like? What are they doing? What do they sound like? Um, so that's Engineering Sanity uh, Facebook page. Um yeah, and, and everybody. I've, I've got a YouTube channel that I, I've kind of ignored. Uh, it's neglected. I need to get that up to speed. Yeah, I'll, I'll put all the information up so that everybody can click onto it. I'll put a hot link up so everybody can go onto it and, and just check out all your stuff. But I enjoy you coming on. Everybody, my name is Leonard Olivares, and this is Eyes Wide Open. Thank you, and God bless. Now let me tell a story about the devil, what he do The snake, the fake, the way he make you think his lies are truth Angel disguises light, confusing wrong and right As above, so below, this is how his story go Him and 200 of his brethren came and settled down They changed his place from paradise to an unholy ground Under the evil man, created Nephilim But now the time to strike is right, can't let the devil win
Have you heard the word? Are you ready to rise? He's about to return to been prophesied And I'm here to testify Only one thing saved me And that's G.O.D. He gave his only son for us Now that everyone is up to another level Flipping it up No way we're gonna let that happen No way we're gonna let that slide Gonna say his name out loud y'all Gonna fight for what is right No, it's hard to believe it But he even said the rest like me That's why I'm broken The devil's chains No longer playing this game What they will pay is in Jesus' name Come on, say tonight under the heavens whereby men can be saved other than the name of Jesus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.